Hi, this is Aaron Azrod, and welcome to the third part in our series, Rome, the Decline of Democracy. I am once again joined with Brett. Where we last left off, Julius Caesar had risen to become dictator of Rome, only to be assassinated by his fellow senators. Hoping to restore back Rome to its democratic roots and grappling with a power vacuum, Rome is now on the brink of civil war, with Caesar leaving his son, Gaius Octavius, the sole heir of his fortune. Brett, let's go ahead and continue our story. Sure. Thanks. Thanks for having me back, Aaron. My pleasure. So where we left off, Caesar had just been assassinated in Pompey's theater by the Liberator Conspiracy. There's a few famous people that we'll, we know of. Cassius and Brutus are the most famous. Uh, everyone knows the, the Shakespearean quote, right? Like, A2 Brute? Yes, right? you, you too, Brutus. <laughs> exactly. So Caesar has just died. And with him dies the, the office of dictator. And with him dies the, the power struggle in Rome to, to kind of usurp control of the state, right? Yeah. No, wrong. <laughs> Caesar, you led me down a false road there, Brett. <laughs> I did, I did. It was a trick question. So what, we're, what we see is that it's not enough to, to just kill the guy in charge and then call the day and be like, okay, democracy is safe. Let's, let's go home and maybe we'll get dinner later, right? It's, it's at the crux of it, Caesar and Marius before him and the Gracchi brothers before them, they were taking advantage of a broken system. And to kill the infestation without boarding up the holes that the infestation is getting into will not do much to protect your house. I like that. That's a really good analogy because when we think of Caesar, we're like, you're, you're the problem, sir. You're the one that was power hungry. If it wasn't for your lust and power hunger, this would never have happened. But we tend not to rewind the clock and see all of the things that allowed someone like Caesar to become power hungry. Yeah. It's like, it would be, yeah, it would be like blaming the rats in your house for your infestation and being like, if it wasn't for these rats, there would be no infestation, not realizing that you, you know, there's a hole in your basement. Yes, right? exactly. It's, it's they'll, they'll always be rats right? <laughs> and they'll always be threats to democracy. And you need the vigilance is the key word, not necessarily these kind of actions. And so what we're going to see when Caesar's assassinated is a couple of problems right off the bat. One is that Caesar had already done a lot of work consolidating power and money in Rome. Caesar was already dictator for life at this point, which was an official title. And Caesar had already been uh, given multiple titles and authorities. And in Rome, those titles and those authorities, uh, they, could they could and they did transfer down to next of kin, right? And even if they didn't, even if they didn't, someone still needed to fill those roles. Someone has to, right? Caesar had a lot of money. The The genocide in in Cisalpine Gaul uh, and Transalpine Gaul made him very, very, very rich. Easily the richest person in Rome, one of the richest people to ever live, a staggering amount of money. And 
you know, with money comes power. What happens to that money? And then the other problem is that Caesar had a support structure. He was not alone at the top. The most obvious one, I won't go too into it, it would be Mark Antony, his his closest friend and the official power in Rome. He was one of the consuls, which is like the presidents, right? So Caesar was like the secret, you know, Illuminati leader and and Antony was 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 the president. Right. And they didn't do anything about any of those things. So by focusing too much on Caesar and leaving Mark Antony alive, what you end up doing is you leave someone who's loyal to Caesar, who has aspirations like Caesar has with official power. That's super dangerous. I, I, um, think, I think you mentioned last time that Anthony was actually offended that they didn't come for him as well. He was like, hey, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe the um, uh, Cicero. Are you familiar with the the famous statesman and philosopher Cicero? I've heard the name. Yeah, he he has a, a famous quote that is, "The Ides of March were a fine deed, but a deed half done." Yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And and so what he means there is like the intention was good, but more needed to be done, and it wasn't. So. The next step in the story is Mark Antony uh, comes out of hiding because he he flees once he hears that Caesar is dead, thinking that he's in danger in his own life. After a little while of realizing that, you know, no one is coming for him, he returns back to work as the, the official head of the Roman state. They they kind of get underway with with normal matters. Uh, they read Julius Caesar's will, and it's revealed that Julius Caesar did not leave anything to Mark Antony like he expected, and rather he left everything to his nephew, who he posthumously adopts. So sometimes we call him his nephew, sometimes we call him his son. Uh, for for just clarity's sake, I'll refer to him as his son. Is there any like reason as to why he kind of leaves his fortune to a relative that's not as close to him in blood? Like, did they bond more? I'm, I'm wondering if historians have any idea about that. There's there's some theories. Uh, Caesar had no legitimate children. Hmm. He had a bastard child with Cleopatra uh, named Caesarian. But because that child would be half Roman and half Egyptian, that would be like laws and citizenship there'd be problems there so that he doesn't count and then other than that he had no children Ah, uh, okay male children i guess he liked octavius right um he octavius was when caesar was after caesar had defeated pompey in in the east he turned to fight some more of the uh like just do like a mop up of the the remaining pro liberty parties in the West and Spain, and uh, Octavian was one of the first to like actually head out and support Caesar, whereas a lot of senators like were like waiting kind of to see who would win that fight before they threw their support behind someone. They were just trying to play the odds, so to speak, and so that probably spoke to Caesar in a powerful way. And on the way back from that fight. Caesar and Octavian actually rode in the same procession together. And so Caesar probably got to know a bit about Octavian. Octavian was very young at this time. He's not even 20 years old. And uh, he probably saw something in the boy. Right, right. right. And so Caesar leaves everything to Octavian, right? Mark Antony reads the Caesar's will. And it's that famous uh, friends, Romans, (laughs) countrymen, lend me your ears, that's what that is from. Sure. Right? 
and he gets the crowd riled up. He he defends Caesar, calling him a hero of the people. He attacks the the liberator conspirators conspiratists and makes them out to be monsters, right? And he actually holds up like a bloodied cloak of Julius Caesar and he points at different stab wounds and he's like, here, Cassius, here, Brutus, right? And he's like, he really, he incites a riot in Rome, right? The now people- this guy is reading Caesar's will, but he's not mentioned in Caesar's will at all. So he's like able to pull no. this off. Like that's that's gotta be really awkward that you're reading this will and then you're thinking in the back of your head, this guy did not include me at all. And then you still have to kind of put on this act of like, I loved him so much. Here are the stab wounds and stuff. That must be difficult to mentally. And he lied too. He he said that Caesar left most of his estate to the people of Rome because they were his first priority, which was not true. Caesar left most of his estate to his nephew slash son, Octavius. But it's, it's <laughs> Antony... Antony had his own his own um, agenda, which was he he had his own ideals for power by the time. So when Caesar went to Gaul in 58 BC, he left with four legions worth of soldiers. By the time he's fighting Pompey, there are 11 under his command. And those 11 legions are loyal to Caesar and loyalty is not something that you like return back to the state loyalty goes where it goes. And so what ends up happening with those 11 legions is they needed to decide who they were going to be loyal to after Caesar was assassinated. And most of them could not find it in their heart to be loyal to the Republic because they were mad at the liberators for assassinating their leader who they really liked. It's it's it kind of comes back to this idea of like consent of the governed and these senators are not reading the room like they're just they're, they're just not reading it and they think that by just eliminating the tyrant and eliminating the dictator that by ver- by like some kind of osmosis process they are going to be legitimate but they're just not they're, they're not reading people and seeing what they really want it's that absolutely it's also that they believe that so this is something we see occasionally in today where people follow the rule of law and they don't realize that like the law is unpopular Mm. and so they think that like by just following the rules that everything will be okay not realizing that unrest is fomenting under their feet because that people hate the law read read the room not the rules (laughs) i i see online uh, on Twitter occasionally people there's like this one quote that flows around where people are like don't forget that like the Holocaust was legal slavery was legal yeah if your basis for moral high ground is legality you might be on the wrong side yes yeah right it's very true and, and and that's what was happening here is that technically Caesar was breaking laws but he was very popular for that. And people hated the old laws, right? Because it made them poor. The laws were set up to favor the rich. You have the, and also as a side, these legions that were loyal to Caesar, it's not just because they liked, they were like, you know, populists. It was because by being in Caesar's army and ra- waging war, you were personally getting rich. Caesar made you rich, not because of good policy or because of like fair treatment, but because he led you into a village and said, 
whatever you can carry on your back is yours. Have fun. Right. And this is very interesting because I, 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 it's something that someone just recently told me about leadership is that no one likes a leader because they're really, really handsome. Like no, no one gives a crap about how good looking you are or um, what, like how you dress or, or your charisma. It's like, this guy is putting food on my table and now yeah. you've taken away the food that's on my table and that's really pissing me off. Yeah. Things were going good and you, you messed it up and now I'm pissed off. And, and it's, it's, it comes from not just a source of like, so for some people, I think that comes from a source of like common sense where, you know, and, and to draw a parallel to, to today, some people will maybe look at political leaders and be like, this corruption is bad for the government, right? It mm. makes my tax dollars less effective. Like this, this leader is, is maybe even stupid. And it's like, you're wasting money. You're not doing a good job of managing this system. But for some people, it's more direct. It's like, this leader was literally giving me federal grants to do things. Yes, yeah. And now that he's gone, I've lost that money. It's not a matter of corruption or efficiency. It's like straight up, this guy was directly putting money in my pocket, and now he's not. Yeah, and that, that's immensely frustrating. You know, and, and I think I think in today's today's political climate you you do see that you see the those two kinds of people on both sides of the spectrum um for let's talk republicans you have republicans who are like i don't like these liberal politicians because i think that they're doing they're inefficient in what they're setting out to do and then you have the then you have other ones that are like i don't care about efficiency i specifically care about tax cuts like i don't want to pay more money and anyone who's going to make me pay more money directly i am against and so it's like it's almost like idealism versus realism right and you might you might even have like i think a lot of people in the public sector are very loyal to democrats because if there is, you know, if the state goes into some kind of tax cutting measure, then their 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 jobs could be at loss, or their federal funding could be cut for whatever program they're doing. So I, I think that there that allegiance kind of comes in based on how you're you basically uh, earn your livelihood in many respects. Absolutely. So these soldiers are they need to decide who they're going to be loyal to. And they split kind of down the middle between Octavius and Mark Antony, right? Octavius being Caesar's blood relative, as far as Rome is concerned, uh, he's adopted. And Antony being uh, uh, his best friend and a soldier that they shared their camp with for a long time. So now what we have is, and also there are, there are still legions that are loyal to the Republic, right? The Republic has something of... 20 legions and Mark Antony and Octavius have between them something like 17 legions. It's there's like an uneasy thing. There's no no war right now, but it's everyone kind of knows what's up. There's now this like game of like stop the music, so to speak, <laughs> uh, with the three of them. You know, who's going to be left holding the bag? So Mark Antony, he goes out to try to create like an alliance with the Senate, right? He's still consul, he's right. still technically in charge of the government. Octavius has no legal claim to these legions. They are loyal to him, but he can't really legally order them around. Even if Caesar bequeathed his legion, could you could he have done that in no. his will? Okay. He can't and he didn't. 
the the legions were technically loyal to the everyone's technically technically loyal to the senate but really if if the senate said like to let's say five or seven of these legions like go arrest octavius octavian and octavius was like um no don't arrest me this is illegal go to the senate instead they would follow his rule interesting and even right. though even and that's just like the power of loyalty that this guy has no real authority but just because he's more closely aligned or associated with caesar the legion would actually listen to him that's crazy that's correct and and so mark antony as still in the the head of power he's trying to play nice with the senate he's asking them for some of the powers and titles that they had bequeathed onto caesar and he's basically promising like i won't you know sick my legions on the republic if you you give me this authority that i want and this might have worked but octavian seeing an opportunity here starts this rhetoric accusing antony of being a traitor right he's like how could you make nice with with my father your best friends assassins like what's wrong with you and this works the rank and file soldiers who like mark antony because of his affiliation with caesar start to grumble and they're not happy with this. And it forces Mark Antony to distance himself from the Senate and instead take a more hard-nosed approach to them, right? I'm wondering also like how, like when 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 he made that descent, like how are you aligning yourselves with these senators that, that killed my father and so forth? How do, how do these figures in ancient Rome like publicly display their pleasure like is there is there media is there a news like i'm wondering how are there like stone tablets that are going out with these remarks like i'm wondering how they're circulating this dissent and this and this like discourse that's going on um, amongst the legions well they didn't have twitter back then (laughs) yeah right (laughs) um so usually there's lots of like amp Rome is famous for building these these public forums, these amphitheaters. And so what would happen is you would you'd send out your guys and your guys would go out to these public squares, these markets. And I mean, like you've heard of a town crier. <laughs> that's what a town crier is. Right. That's that's what it is. Well, so they so they would gather people in some kind of theater and then there would be like an like a, a trained spokesperson that would talk to like uh, a group of 50 people and be like this is what antony has to say in regard to that and 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 that's kind of how they would for, uh, like it's kind of like a version of podcasting almost it's like an oral like it's, it's like it's like a, the predecessor to podcasting where you have a spokesperson that's going out there and speaking to as many people as humanly possible absolutely it, it's it's they would go out to these these town squares and they'd stand on platforms and they would just yell they would be like they would be they would yell to no one and to everyone how could you the noble citizens of rome allow this injustice to occur in our fair time while the fat republican senators get uh get rich off of the work of our labor our dutiful leader was murdered for defense you know and then people would that would that yelling would attract crowds and crowds would attract bigger crowds and and that's how that would that's how that would happen right and, and today we would just think that person's crazy It'd be like some guy standing on a park yep. bench yelling at us let's let's uh, rein them in <laughs> absolutely today that that forum is is more uh for, you know it's funny for a while that forum ceased to exist yeah right yeah. um there was time when the world was small enough that you could get away with that and then for a long time probably like the advent of the um 
the industrial revolution or, or maybe even the printing press right yes the birth, of, the birth of of mainstream news probably put to rest that that era and then it became there was no more corner street corner yelling and it became more of like who has the money and the resources to print the news to espouse their opinion but now we've gone back to that we've gone full circle and those those forum places are their facebook their twitter their reddit they we're we're back there we're back to every individual has that voice and can can amass a crowd of people and get their opinion out well hopefully for good (laughs) (laughs) we'll see (laughs) we'll see frankly frankly that kind of populism has benefits and drawbacks yeah it does Uh, it does that could subject for another day i think yeah yeah absolutely let's see how this plays out in rome though yeah absolutely so so what happens is is that Octavius's plan works, and Mar- the soldiers are grumbling, and Mark Antony has no choice but to distance himself from the Senate, right? He su- Caesar successfully drives a wedge between the Senate and Mark Antony. So Mark Antony is abusing his power as consul. He doesn't have the Senate backing anymore. He has Cicero in the Senate dogging him all the time, constantly saying bad things about him. Cicero is... Um, like kind of like he's one of the the main opponents of this we call them the Caesarian party now which would be mm. Mark Antony and Augustus' side even though they're not friends they oh, they hate each other so we'll fast forward a little bit and the way that Rome works is after you finish a position in government in the central government in Rome you step laterally into a pro position so pro so consulars become pro consulars praetors become pro praetors and that you generally leave Rome and go to one of these outlying provinces and you are in charge of those provinces antony was slated to become a pro consular in macedonia which is um you know it would have been fine it would have been a nice uh slice of of the country for him to get rich and do his thing right but he wanted power and he wanted money right so at the last minute he pushed through a governorship for cisalpine gaul which is a border state the border states generally made more money and generally had bigger militaries because you needed bigger militaries in those states he did that and rushed off uh, after his 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 consulship was over he he rushed out to Cisalpine Gaul to assume control of the legions there and continue his kind of his bid for power. The problem was twofold. One, there was already a governor there, uh, a member of the uh, liberator conspiracy named Decimus Brutus, not to be confused with the Brutus that assassinated Caesar, but he was part of that group. I apologize, by the way, because it's going to get confusing. With lots of people with the same name, and a I'm lot really of, sorry. a lot of Jones and Smiths out there, right? Yeah, yeah. Everyone in everyone in Rome was named Gaius, unfortunately. So they weren't very creative. Um, so he rushes out there, and while he's rushing out there, Cicero delivers these scathing orations, calling Antony a, a traitor, an enemy of the state. It works. While Antony is on his way to basically wage war against a a senatorial army, uh, he's declared an enemy of the state at the behest of Cicero. Not, and this is this is like the last that we'll see of like legitimate 
Republican virtue. Cicero did not order him to be made enemy of the state. He didn't threaten anyone. He he debated and delivered an oration that swayed the hearts and minds of his fellow senators and convinced them to do this. So this is very interesting because I'm noticing a huge tectonic plate shift going on here because when Caesar was rising in power, his main goal was like, I need to cling on to legitimacy. I need to cling on to legitimacy. I need, I need this person to endorse me. And now it's actually gotten to a point where it's like, I don't want to cling on to legitimacy. I want to listen to what the crowd says. I want to make them as happy as possible. And I, I see that as sort of being a very radical shift in, in what's going on here. I think that you're right. I think that Caesar was doing his thing. He had to work. As time goes on, the the people who are doing power grabs less and less need the legitimacy and are more willing to step outside the bounds of what is technically legal. So Anthony is a traitor. Uh, this weakens his position, and it also takes away some of his legitimacy because there are new consulars. Antony is no longer a consular. That's why he's going to Cisalpine Gaul. His consulship is over, and he's going to get his governorship now. Um, and now he's in serious trouble. But but this 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 moment, as just an aside, probably is what gets Cicero killed a few months from now. When Antony and Octavian get together uh, and they start making decisions about stuff, one of those decisions is going to be Cicero has to die. Octavius has no problem with Cicero, so we can only assume that came from Antony. Probably where he, his death warrant gets signed. But uh, at any rate, so Antony is marching towards Decimus Brutus in Cisalpine Gaul, and the two new consulars for this year are marching after Antony. They raise their own consular armies of about three or four legions each, chasing after Antony's seven legions, who is going after Decimus Brutus and his like four legions, right? The Senate asks Caesar to help. They, they because of Cicero, for Cicero, for whatever reason, believed that Octavius was like the lesser of two evils. And as I said before, everyone is trying to like get an ally and freeze out the third person in the game. So the Senate decides they're going to ally with Octavius. They let him skip a lot of the official rules of like who can be what in the government and make him uh, a, a praetor, which is kind of like a, a general, right? Wow. And they're like, we're going to make you a general. Take your, your four to seven legions, uh, merge them with the consular armies, and help us take out Antony, right? And he's like, yeah, sure, that sounds good. So Caesar gets there, and he's the junior in the camp, right? He is... Uh, He's the junior. The year is, is, it's funny, the year is 43 BC. In like a year and a half, he'll be the most powerful person on earth. But wow. right now, he, he's a junior. He merges his army like they ask, and he gives control of the army over to the consul, the consul who's there, who's a man named uh, Hirtius, right? Hirtius is going to wait for the other consul, a man named Panza, to get ready so that the two massive consular armies can attack Antony and like run him into the, like just obliterate him, right? Antony realizes what is going on and he breaks off his attack on, on Decimus and instead goes after Panza, who's not quite ready yet. He's successful. He mortally wounds Panza. Panza will not die today, but 
within a week or so, he'll be dead from his wounds. Wow. This is important. This is really important. The fight weakens Antony enough that Hirtius feels comfortable attacking, and then Hirtius's army attacks, and Hirtius dies in the battle. This is huge. This is like, this is the most, this is the hugest hugeness that's that's happened, right? Because with Panza and Hirtius dead, control of the senatorial legions falls to Octavius. And now Octavius is in charge of something like 11 legions. And then Decimus Brutus repels the attack on Antony, but because Caesar has so much power and control, he kind of like steals the legions away from Brutus, Mm. right? There's no fighting. He just takes them. And (laughs) Brutus is like, uh, like, wait, those are mine. And then Caesar is like, no, they're not. And you're not even, Brutus isn't even invited to like the table to discuss strategy. He's like kicked out of camp, more or less. I'm listening to you. And I noticed that the speed like the temple and the temple in which things are happening, they're happening really, really, really fast. And I'm seeing a theme that like more lawlessness seems to, to seep into a society when things are moving highly, like really, really quicker, right? Like I think that we have, like people complain about democracy as being way too slow, but they're failing to realize that the slowness is actually safeguards. And, and as you can see, once the safeguards are gone, things start moving really, really, really quick. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the, being far away from the seat of power is another thing. The Senate cannot exert as much control this far out. And so things are happening without their, without their input, right? Sure. So back home, what they're hearing is the traitor Antony his siege of Cisalpine Gaul has been repelled. Brutus is alive and the Republican armies are victorious. And some people are really happy, but other people are seeing the writing on the wall and they're like, "Uh oh, Octavius has control of like half of the senatorial armies and he is alone up there with Antony. This is really bad. Uh, And the ones who were thinking that ended up being right. So, Antony retreats into the Alps. He hooks up with an old friend, a man named Lepidus, and increases his his size of legions from like four to 11. Caesar himself is controlling something like 15 legions. What you end up with is suddenly these two men realize we have a lot more in common than we don't. Mm. And they have some meetings, some famous meetings where they start talking and they start making decisions, right? And what comes out of this is a thing called the Commission of Three for the Ordering of the State. The three being Lepidus, Antony, and Caesar. The The reason this is, is because Caesar has official power. He What he does is he, after uh, the two consuls die, Caesar demands that he be made a consular. And then the Senate is like, I don't think that's such a good idea. And then he turns his 11 or so, or his however many legions, 10 plus legions around and points them at Rome. And then the Senate is like, okay, you could be a consular. That sounds fair. And Lepidus is governor, but Antony has no official position in the, the government right now. So they need Lepidus. Lepidus is like a rubber stamp. So this is like a second triumvirate. Is that fair to say? Yeah, that's what, 
historically that's what we call it. We call it the second triumvirate. They didn't call it that at the time. Uh, it's officially ratified by the Senate and they're given free reign to do whatever they want for five years. And what they do with this power is they want to go after Brutus and Cassius, the, the two main conspirators, the two, the, like the last vestige of democracy in Rome. Sure. Right? They've merged their armies and they, now that they're together, they have the, they have the power to go after these two, but there's a little problem, which is they're out of money. So they, they need money. How do they get that money? They do a tactic called conscription, which is put simply, you write up a list of names, you post those names in the town square. Anyone whose name appears on that list, their lives are forfeit, their property is forfeit. They're killed, and anything that they own, any assets that they have, go to the state. But well, hold on. Case, well, I got a lot of questions with this one here. So. Sure. The people who were up for conscription, was this random or was it like, hey, you're a criminal or there's some other misdeeds that you have done? Like, how, how would one get onto the conscription list? You would be a criminal. Okay. Typically, it would be used in times of like great emergency and it would be for stuff like pirates. You'd mm. be like, the, the, following, the names of the following pirates have been posted, free reign, kill them. If you kill them, you get a cut of their property. And then the rest goes back to the state because presumably their property is stolen goods, right? And it doesn't matter, even if they had like turned a new leaf and were living a life that was legitimate, that doesn't matter. If it was such that that they had turned a new leaf, that the government thought that they had repented, then they probably wouldn't show up on the conscription list. So this is it. So the government just knows that there are like organized criminals just lurking about and they just let it be until it's time to seize their assets. That's kind of like their, uh, <laughs> their operation. It's more like, this is like, a, like think of these like bounties, they're like emergencies, right? But they're not used that way. They're never used that way throughout history. And in this case, Basically, the people who showed up on the list were the political enemies of Antony and Caesar. And okay. this round of conscription saw the final purging of anyone left who maybe would stand against these two. Right? Okay, I see. Any, Cicero is one of the people. He did nothing wrong. But to, because he declared the new leader of Rome an enemy of the state, yeah, you better believe he's on the list as a traitor. Okay, right? gotcha. He – um famously says uh, to the soldiers that arrived at his door, there is nothing proper about what you are doing, sir. But if you must kill me, all I ask is that you get it right the first time. <laughs> right. And he, and he famously like bowed his head to let them chop, you know, chop wow. his neck. Right. Yeah. So this the is like a, so this is more of a gulag type situation here where it's oh, like, yeah. th th okay, gotcha. Now I'm totally reading it. Whenever conscription occurs in Rome, it's awful. It's bloody, and it's it's only ever used to kill political enemies and steal their assets, usually to fund a war against your other political enemies. Gotcha. That's what's going on here, is that Brutus and Cassius have their own liberator armies that Caesar and Antony can't just go and arrest them. So they arrest their friends instead, and then use the money that their friends had to finance the war against Bruce, uh, Bruce and Cassius. This is basically the third civil war in like a decade. The people of Rome are sick of this. War means rioting, death. It's not good. They do this. They eventually get enough money to bankroll their war. They go 
they kill Cassius and Brutus. They win uh, the Battle of Philippi, fought near the Hellespont in Greece, which uh, is the site of the famous Battle of Thermopylae, where Gerard Butler led like 300 soldiers against Zack Snyder or something like that. I'm not super, <laughs> not super big on Greek history. Um, so <laughs> this, this is like a really famous area. Is what yeah. So the Battle of Philippi ends with victory for the triumvirs, and that's the end of, of liberty in, in Rome. It's dead. At this point, Tavius, Octavian, and um, Mark Antony split the empire in half with Caesar taking – I apologize. I keep flipping back and forth. The truth is is that Octavius, Octavian has like 10 names, right? <laughs> um He's, I haven't called him Augustus yet, and I haven't done that for a reason because he's not Augustus yet. Gotcha. Uh, but Octavian gets the West, and Antony gets the East. Antony is is less visionary than Caesar is. He's he's a hedonist. He's he's a partier. He's a drinker. He's a soldier. He's not a visionary. So Antony takes the East, and he's like whooping it up every night. Is like dinner with with Eastern princesses. Is is uh, indulging in mystery cults. Is you know, drink himself into a stupor, playing games, watching gladiatorial fights, whereas Caesar is more of a, a state builder. He's, they each have their own problems. Caesar's problem is piracy. Uh, Pompey's son is now a famous pirate and is plundering the Mediterranean Sea. And, and Caesar is kind of in charge of fixing that. Caesar's also in charge of settling all the soldiers in the last civil war. Antony is not in charge of anything. He's doing whatever whatever the hell he wants, but you could say he's in charge of waging war with Parthia because he, he plans on doing that. He plans on waging a grand campaign in Parthia. Both of them have plans. Caesar's plan is to get his house in order in the West and then basically make a move on Antony's stuff. And Antony's plan is to wage a financially and socially successful war in Parthia, come back rich, and then wage war on Caesar. Even though they had this agreement that they would each rule jointly, neither side planned on doing that for very long. So this is interesting. I kind of want to just stop the clock here and just talk about this idea in like a shift of motives. And we know that Julius Caesar was an opportunist, right? Like we, we know that he, he was trying to get wealthy and reclaim his status, but there had to be some facade at the very least of like, I'm here to take care of the plebeians. I'm here to uplift you guys. I'm here. Like there had to be at least a facade of like, okay, I still got your back. And he did in fairness, take care of his soldiers. Like they're, 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 he did cover those fronts. It seems like once we get into this ultra state of chaos, all the facades, all the masks, if you will, just fall by the wayside. And it's like, yeah, I really just want to get rich at this point. And I, I, I think that that's another shift when, when, when a democracy or a republic really, really begins to crumble. I think like the masks just come off completely at this point. Yeah, there's actually a really uh, great quote from this era. I mean, this era is so full of great <laughs> quotes. Um, but there's a great quote from Pompey Magnus, who's the guy that Caesar defeated, that says uh, a bunch of governors were appealing to him because he was like, you know, he and Caesar and um, Crassus were stealing money to, to fund a war, right, at the time. And they're like, you can't do this. And he says, stop quoting laws to us. We carry the swords. Mm, and mm. so more and more people are realizing that 
you know, as long as you keep the soldiers happy, who cares what everyone else thinks, right? Wow. So it becomes like I think that the 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 veil of politics kind of just like imagine politics is like the tablecloth, right? And the the veil of politics is like social order, maintaining rule of law, and then that tablecloth is just ripped off the table, and it's really like it's all about resources now. It's just it's like we've got the resources, and therefore we have the power. And I, I think that that's a very subtle shift that begins to happen because we keep saying law and order, rules, constitution. We keep using these words over and over again, but we don't realize how quickly the tablecloth can just be like ripped off the table and it just comes down to I've got the gold, I've got the soldiers, I've got the resources. Oh, it's always that. Even in today's time, it's that. I mean, the idea is that like, let's pretend for a moment that we're talking about an American election and uh, obviously, we're not even close to the level of, you know, military force stepping in to decide the presidency or even anything. But um, let's say that you're running for like a position of power in a town of 100 people. And let's say 60 of the people are like big polluters and 40 of them are environmentalists. And let's pretend Hopefully you don't have to pretend, but let's pretend that polluting is bad. Right. Um, <laughs> um, it doesn't matter how lofty your ideals are. You need to appeal to those 60 polluters. And if you say, like, I'm going to do it right, I'm not going to take the low road, and I'm going to appeal to the environmentalists instead, you will lose the election to someone who didn't have those same ideals as you, who said, I'm willing to do what it takes to win. You'll lose. You have no choice. But I think that under that model, though, the environmentalists at least have a card to play. Like, I think that they they can kind of publicly shame these companies. They can kind of be like, you guys are polluting. And it may not work, and they may have to bend and twist and, and, and contour to the business interest at hand, but they still have a hand to play. I think under this Roman model, the, environment, the environmentalists have no say. It's just like, I got the money, I got the resources, I got the capital. I don't, you don't even, like public welfare and, and public thought or opinion does not matter at this point at all. Absolutely. I mean, it's not that it doesn't matter because they, they are, they're still a welfare state in Rome, but you're correct. I mean, one of the ways that, that Rome pays its soldiers is they give them money and land and the way that Octavian is doing this is he's literally stealing land, right? He's like just taking it from people, from businesses, and then giving it to soldiers because he knows that the soldiers will be happy. Who cares what the people think? Right. Soldiers will deal with it for you, right? Which, which is like a, a trend, I think, that we're seeing that as also the uh, public appeal and we see all of that starting to fade, we see also the rise of like, a plutocracy in some in some sense that the people who have the resources now and have the money and can put food on your like and I think like this is an appeal to if you're a starving woman right in Rome and you've got a child to feed you're you're not going to be taken in by like environmental arguments you're not going to be taken into like oh we just need to ban you're going to be like i i'm going to support this general over here because he is going to put food on my plate and allow me to feed my baby and i think that's like a very a very real thing that that we sometimes forget when things get a little too comfortable at this point that we're in the third civil war arguably the fourth civil war these people don't support anyone anymore 
Wow. They are these citizens are akin to citizens of Russia during Stalin's five year after Stalin's five year plan. These people are citizens of China after the Great Leap Forward. These people are exhausted. They don't have opinions anymore. They just want to not be killed. Right. Wow, wow. They are they are now their bar is so low. They are now willing to follow anyone who just promises to just stop the killing, to stop the fighting and let there be some level of stability. You have to realize that for someone at this point, at this point, the year is approximately like 35 BC. It's been over two decades of war, of personal war, not of like American fighting in a place that you can't even point out in a globe war. We're talking war like, you know, it would be like war in, like for us as New Yorkers, it would be like war in California. Wow. Wow. So it's like once you get, you know, into your second, third, fourth civil war, all idealism is just gone like people like it, it kind of like these civil wars and especially civil wars that are happening in your backyard they completely corrode any higher sense of principle that you you have at this point well yeah yeah i mean wouldn't you agree that yeah. like survival instincts start to kick in after the 20th year of of people that you personally know in your village being marched off at sword point gunpoint i mean not then they didn't have guns but you know and it's not just that that their opinions have corroded. It's also the people who had opinions are dead, right? <laughs> All the great thinkers are gone. That's, that's yeah. another. They've been purged uh, one after, you know, purge after purge after purge of, of Sulla's side taking over and purging the Marian supporters. And then Caesar's side taking over and purging the Republican supporters. And then Antony's side taking over and purging the Liberator supporters. It's just just wave after wave of just culling the people who care and just showing everyone who's still alive, this is what happens mm, mm. when you speak out. This is what happens when you have an opinion. Keep your head down. Keep your business to yourself because the threat is real if, if you try to take a stand, right? Yeah, you know, it's funny because like you and I both lived in, in Queens and, and, and we – interact with people who came from like uh, Eastern Europe or came from communism. And sometimes you can see in them this weariness of, of intellectuals and weariness of people that are very, what we call like high-minded. And it's not that they don't necessarily, they may not disagree with what you're saying, but they're kind of frightened for you in a little way. It, it seems like the intellectuals of any society are really the first to go when like shit hits the fans. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's definitely that sentiment of like nothing good comes from talking about politics. And that's I think that's present like pretty much everywhere because people know that politics is a passionate and dirty game. Yes. But more in these these oppressive governments, is it like they're even more hesitant to talk because it's, it's not worth it for them. Right. Exactly. It's not worth it to criticize the government and then disappear forever. Exactly. Brett, yeah. thank you so much for being on the show today. Uh, no problem. This concludes the third part in our series, Rome, the Decline of Democracy. I'm Aaron Azrod.